Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to Form Book Club. We have Vivian Dudrow back with us here in our Ignatius Press studio. Joseph, as always, in South Carolina. We're continuing our discussion of In Defense of Sanity, the best essays of G.K. Essendon, according to Joseph Pierce, Dale Alquist, and Aidan Mackey. And uh, we're going to continue with the chapter on the architect of spear, architecture spears, architecture spears, uh, on page 69, and we'll see how far we get. I think Joseph wanted to start this chapter, didn't you, Joseph? Joseph, did you? Yes, this is actually one of my personal favorites. Um, it's basically a defense of, uh, of Gothic architecture. And uh, what I like about it is, is, is this is just typical Chesterton full of wonder. He's in the city of Lincoln. He's looking up at the tower of Lincoln Cathedral. And then he has this optical illusion that the actual tower begins to move. And, of course, what's actually happening is there's some furniture vans in front uh, of the cathedral they're actually moving, but the optical illusion makes it look as if the cathedral's moving. And this sets Chesterton one of his wonderful, you know, visionary expeditions into the imagination. And he, he just visualizes Gothic architecture as the architect of the church militant that marching across Europe and he, with evangelical zeal to convert, to, to convert the world. And I just, um, I just love that vision. But also, if, if I may, can I just read um, a paragraph from it? So on page 71, the second full paragraph, the truth about Gothic Wait is, a minute, Joseph. I was going to read that one. But, you know, go ahead. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that great people think alike. You're welcome if you'd, if you, if you'd rather. Oh, go ahead. All right. The truth about Gothic is, first, that it is alive. And second, that it is on the march. It is the church militant. It is the only fighting architecture. All its spires are spears at rest, and all its stones are stones asleep in a catapult. In that instant of illusion, I could hear the arches clash like swords as they crossed each other. The mighty and numberless columns seemed to go swinging by like the huge feet of imperial elephants. The graven foliage wreathed and blew like banners going into battle. The silence was deafening with all the mingled noises of a military march. The great bell shook down as the organ shook up its thunder. The thirsty-throated gargoyles shouted like trumpets from all the roofs and pinnacles as they passed. And from the lectern in the core of the cathedral, the eagle of the awful evangelist crashed his wings of brass. <laughs> That's just sensationally superb prose and very evocative, I think, of the, of the underlying truth of what the, the, the goth, Gothic movement is. Well, we will see in a future essay we're going to discuss, he's meditating on a gargoyle, 
which of course was part of a Gothic cathedral. And he is going to describe the three phases of art, Greek classicism, Gothic, and then modern fragmentation or deconstructionism. So we'll get to that at a future moment. Looking, absolutely looking forward to it. But I, I did want to say, I, I, I just think that, um, uh, one other thing I did want to say about it is there's this element of dilatatio there, of course, the opening of the mind, the soul, the fullness of reality. But what he, at the, when he realizes it's not an illusion, which of course he does fairly soon because he's not going to literally think that he was marching, what he's suffering from is disillusionment, which is different from disenchantment. I mean, to be disillusioned is to cease to believe in the illusion, right? And he realized, of course, very quickly, it's an optical illusion, but he's still enchanted. In fact, the illusion makes him enchanted. It re-enchants him. So that it's, although he's disillusioned, he's at simultaneously re-enchanted. And there's a difference between the two. I, as a Californian by birth and by most of my life, had always thought of old things, old buildings as being like the missions, you know, in 17, whatever hundred was. When I first got to France, uh, you know, I, I encountered these churches built in 1600, 1500, 1200, 1100 and, and earlier. And of course, the Gothic is very prominent in French cities. And it, it really is, it's, it's a beautiful, prayerful, it lifts you up. You go inside and it's amazing how, how they have these high ceilings and all these tall arches. Well, then I, I took a trip to India. And in India, I visited the temples. And the temples were all very low. They, they, I mean, the temple was kind of high, but as you got in, they had these pillars and the city was very low. It was dark. It was low. And... You could see it was it was kind of calling you to go inside inside yourself, whereas in the Gothic cathedral, it's calling you to go outside yourself and to go up into the trans or the spears are pointing. I mean, it really uh, expressed in architecture the different theological view of Hinduism, Buddhism, to uh, Catholicism and Christianity. Absolutely, come with me more. I can't, Vivian, I can't believe you're so silent. Well, Joseph read the paragraph I underlined. Oh, we do? Okay. Yeah. Well, we all did it. All and right. again, it's this wonderful imagery he's so good at, uh, making these things almost like living things, which is what he did to the trees in the thunderstorm, remember? So uh, he's very good at that when he gets going. Well, yeah, on page 72, a new paragraph, he, he says, I could imagine for a moment, dot, 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 but again... He is a master of imagination as a, a portal to reality. Anything more in that chapter, Joseph? That I'm, going to, I'm, go, I'm going to desist. Desist. Okay. If you insist, you can desist. <laughs> uh, the next essay is entitled, Don't, with an asterisk, <laughs> and... I want to comment on the following essay more, so I will leave this to you two if you have anything to say. Although, one sentence, just one sentence, 73, about six lines down. But before I finally desert the illusions of rationalism for the actualities of romance, dot, 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 
Typical Chesterton's. Absolutely. Well, again, I'm going to. I, I'm, I'm happy to leave this also to to, to def having desisted. I'm now going to to defer to Vivian. Well, um, this this <laughs> chapter is an editor's delight because he's 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 making a a list of of don'ts for dogmatists or things I am tired of, and then he proceeds to talk about rules for using language properly. Basically, you know. <laughs> don't use a noun and then an adjective that crosses out the noun and uh, don't say you are not going to say a thing and then say it and so on. It's, it's really charming and he's really uh, pillaring a lot of the essayists and, and other columnists, newspaper columnists of his time and, but doing it in a very fun way. I love the last one, though, number seven, which he kind of segues away from language and use of language and ends with, don't say, and repeats it, oh, don't say, that primitive man knocked on a woman with a club and carried her away. And when you get to that, you're like, where did this come from? But uh, anyway, he can get away with things that many people could not today, that's for sure. But that was at his time, and it's not totally disappeared. You know, we have this idea, the ascent of man. Yes. You know, and you first have the ape, and then the ape, uh, his hands come up a little bit, and then he's got a club. But the idea was, well, the man, you know, beat the woman with the club, you In, know. Into submission, right. Yeah. And then as, I, you, as you might remember, there, there, there's a significant section of The Everlasting Man called The Man in the Cave, where yes. he takes up this idea and runs with it. Well, yeah. to show that the... Uh, use of these images still relevant or current. I believe our chief executive accused uh, a governor of a state of Neanderthal thinking. And I'm not going to name any names, but uh, <laughs> some things just never go away. No, the, the embedded in the language, the, uh, the, the, the bad ideas. There is just a right above that number seven, though. This is typical Chesterton embedded in the midst of it, one of his great aphorisms. There is no, man, there is no big man who has not felt small. Some men never feel small, but these are the few men who are. Yes. And that gets picked up in his next chapter on mystics, which I really loved this chapter. I do too. And I really want to quote a lot from it. Okay. You uh, go first. But uh, he's commenting on a book on mysticism. Uh, and on page 77, he says, the general definition that mysticism is the art of seeing everything as supernatural, of seeing every material object encircled with a halo from a secret sun. So seeing things, but seeing into things, not just behind them, but seeing them as part of something larger than they are. He continues, in other words, mysticism consists in seeing the material universe as a thing so defective as to suggest perfection, a thing of this inspiringly perfect. Inspiringly imperfect. Oh, excuse me, inspire, I'm sorry, inspiringly imperfect. To the mystic, the merely physical version of the universe is like a cow with three legs or a man with one eye. To speak more strictly, it is like a geometrical problem in which two straight lines converge and almost collide together but vanish in darkness an instant before they collide. And this is the whole idea of, of Christian theology. You know, 
we, we can't fully understand what we should say that Jesus is man and he's God, you know. And those things kind of go up, but then there, there's a unity which we can't see. Anyway, I think it's theologically very profound. Isn't that all things that rise must converge? Yeah, well. Is that, am I saying that right? That was a different thing. That was Theodore Chardin, which, which was uh, satirized by Flannery O'Connor, yes. that everything is getting better and better at converging, you know, uh, the noosphere. Well, then I, I want to quote on page, the next page, okay? The new paragraph in the middle. It is remarkable to notice, even in daily life, how constant is this impression of the essential rationality of mysticism. If we want to hear this, all of this, we went up to a man on the street who happened to be standing opposite a lamppost and addressed him playfully with the words, quote, Whence did this strange object spring? How did this lean cyclops with the eye of fire start out of unbegotten night, close quotes? It may generally be inferred, with every possible allowance for the temperament of the individual, that he would not regard our remarks as particularly cogent and practical. And yet, our surprise at the lamppost would be entirely rational. His habit of taking lampposts for granted would be merely a, a, a superstition. The power that makes men accept material phenomena of this universe its cities, civilizations, and solar systems is merely a vulgar prejudice, like the prejudice which made them accept cockfights in the Inquisition. It is the mystic to whom every star is like a sudden rocket, every flower an earthquake of the dust, who is the clear-minded man. Mysticism, or a sense of the mystery of things, is simply the most gigantic form of common sense. We should not have to complain of any materialism if common sense were only common. We have a yeah. book called The Apostle of Common Sense by Dale Alquist. But is this not, Joseph and Vivian, a self-description of Chesterton? It is, and also a self-description of, 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 of whom we're all called to be, because we are all called to be astonished by the ordinary, uh, because the ordinary is miraculous. And, you know, as I, I you know, sometimes said, take the people, a speck of dust would be enough for me to wonder, my, wonder myself towards God, uh, you know, because just the existence, the being of things. So when you look out there and you see, I mean, I look out there now, millions of leaves, Different shades because the sun's on some, the shades on the other. Not apart from being beautiful, it's miraculous, and, and and we should see it that way. And 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 when we don't see it that way, it's because we're blind. I love the fact that he roots Christian mysticism in this common sense that's accessible to every meaning the common man, right? The sense of the common man. It's accessible to everyone who's who allows his eyes to be open, and he contrasts that. With the curse of modern mysticism, the mysticism, this is page 80, the mysticism of the neo-Buddhists and neo-Egyptians is the aristocratic spirit. So when you think about this tendency toward, uh, you know, Gnosticism and, um, and um, esotericism and, and, and the, these sorts of things that become sort of elite clubs, right? Only, only the select few, the, the initiates uh, who can get in need apply. And, and Chesterton instead is rooting Christian mysticism in something as common as the dirt and that anyone uh, can, can, can 
open his eyes to that mystery of reality. So on page 81, he, he continues this thought, Christian mysticism should at least stand for the principle that the moral life is not an egotistical scramble in which the devil catches the hindmost, but a great fellowship in which the devil generally catches the most confident person. <laughs> when a man reaches, as St. Francis reached, the highest plane of spirituality, the fact is signalized by his calling his own beast of burden, my brother, the ass. This is this is so brilliant. This is so contra the the um, these elitist sorts of tendencies that can occur in, in, in religion and Christianity, even though it should speak to the opposite, has its. And I, I love the final sentence as well. Yes. Okay. Please good. do. Yeah. We are, I see we are on. I know. I under okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so shall I read it or should we find it? Go yes, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> um, so. The, the true key of Christian mysticism is not so much self-surrender, which is a painful and complex thing, as self-forgetfulness, which we all fall into in the presence of a splendid sunrise of a little child, and which is to our highest nature as natural as singing to a bird. Yes. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. It is. There's so much wisdom in Chesterton. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've often said... In retreats, the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius, that uh, Ignatius of Loyola was a mystic with mystical prayer. And therefore, he was very practical. And it's, Teresa of Avila is another example. I mean, you read her interior castle, you know, her autobiography, and you see, you know, she is someone who is, who is wrapped in mystical prayer. And yet extremely practical in refounding the order, in reforming the order. And why is that? Because actually mysticism is seeing not just what in the presence of your senses, but seeing through them into a larger world of the real, which God is real, more real than we are. And so mystics are the ones who are most connected to reality. Yes, the exact opposite of what often people think they are. All right, have we had enough of mysticism for today? Mm -hmm. You know, you take so much mysticism at one, mo at one time. Oh, that's you know. true. <laughs> at, least, at least talking about it. A much repeated repetition. He begins by saying, page 82, he must have been a man with a very dim and strange mind who said, history repeats itself. Of course, there is a grain of veracity in it. But surely the correct way of stating the matter would be the universe repeats itself with the possible exception of history. <laughs> it's all it is, free will. I mean, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't say this, there's, a, there's a repetition like in the boiling of water, you know, or the speed of light or something like that, because you've got human will involved. And human individuality. Even, even yes. you know, so on page 83... Uh, the, the bottom of the middle paragraph, to man is spared the hideous and frantic and violent farce of repetition. <laughs> Politicians do not come again like the flowers of the spring. Eminent public persons do not rise again like the sun. You know, this, this uh, talk about a mystery, the mystery of, of divine creation, that every single human being is a completely individual, unique, unrepeatable person. 
You mentioned free will. You mentioned individuality. The other thing I think is important here is creativity. So he says on page 84, beginning of the final paragraph of that page, all this is the origin of the one distinctly human thing, the story. <laughs> so history, if you see history as a story, then obviously things can change depending upon what the characters in the story do, which takes us back to individuality and free will. You know, and my, own, my only note of caution here, just to show that we're not complete sort of uh, Chesterton sycophants, and, and, and he guessed it completely correct at the beginning, there is a grain of veracity in it, the fact that history repeats itself, because, of course, you know, that, that, that sin is destructive, virtue is constructive, and the more that a culture succumbs to, to a sinfulness, the more destructive it is to itself and to its members, the more it, it acts with virtue, the more constructive and civilized it becomes. So there is this, there are these this sort of tapestry, if you like, of good and evil, which weaves its way through the year, through, uh, through the centuries. So there is a pattern, uh, and therefore there is a, a repetition. And so he says there's a veracity in it, but the point is that even that pattern is a story. It's unique, it's individual, it contains free will. Um, it's not like the boiling of water or the, or, or the movement of the stars. Um, so he's completely correct. But I just want to make it perfectly clear that, you know, history is not chaos either. Well, and in Everlasting Man, I think he addresses this question, to, well, do you think like the optimists that things are going to get better or like the pessimists things are going to get worse? And he says, no, he says, history's like Mr. Smith. He may get drunk and fall in a ditch or he may get up and help a beggar. It's a wandering thing. It depends on what people choose to do. Uh, let's see. The maxims of maxim. I had nothing to come. It's, it's interesting, but yeah, I, I I've highlighted nothing on that one. So this doubt is down to Vivian if she has anything. Although I mean, I I think it, it's important what he says is that scientists are no more interested in truth than the man who makes hats. That's right. You know? In fact, he has that on page eighty-eight. The man of science loves truth exactly as often as the hatter loves truth. That is to say, when he happens to be that sort of man. The man of science is truthful when and when only he happens to be an honorable man. I left out, there's a uh, parenthesis in there, but I left that part out. In other words, uh, back to this question of free will, right? Yeah. Uh, a man has a choice to be an honorable man, an honest man or not. And maybe one day he's honest and the next day he's not. But the fact is, is that just because he has a scientific uh, profession or expertise doesn't necessarily make him an honest man. And that's certainly important to remember in our current covidious times, as you like to say, Joseph. <laughs> yes, I, I surrender in those covidious times to the covidious experts. Um, yes. But, but uh, yeah, the, the one thing I, I would say, of course, the, the key proponent of that is that the science means knowledge, and knowledge is not the same thing as truth, right? And so a scientist is one who pursues knowledge, not one who pursues truth. Wait a minute. I, 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 I want to make take it. Knowledge. Of the truth. Is knowledge of things which are. It's not knowledge if it's not true. Well, not that, well. That, that's true. You can be well. Yes and no. You can have a knowledge of astrology. You can have a knowledge of uh, of, of uh, Buddhism. You can have a knowledge of things that aren't of themselves true. Well, but the knowledge is true. I mean, what you know about Buddhism is true or it's not. 
I mean, you, you can say Buddhism is false as a religion or as a philosophy, but knowledge of Buddhism is either true or false. It's true if it corresponds to what Buddhism really is. You are correct, Father. What Thank I, you. What I was, yes, that's that's what, I, what I was trying to say <laughs> is enough. that, 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 that science, science deals with physics. Uh, so knowledge of, of the physical cosmos, and that's not the same thing as truth understood in the fullness of its metaphysical reality. Truth is hierarchical and truth is analogical. But if I say water boils at 100 degrees centigrade, that is true. I'm not arguing with that. In fact, I've already said once already, Father, that you're correct. But I'm saying that the physical sciences only have a knowledge of the, phys of, of, of the physical cosmos. And right. that's not the, full, that's not the fullness of truth. It's limited it truth. As far, it goes as far as it goes in the truth. Right. Yes. Like, I say you're a nice person. That's true. But it's, not, it's limited, very limited. And there's a lot of other things, you know, a larger cosmos in which that's inserted. This next chapter of the book of Job... I first wrote on the top of it after I read it, impenetrable. Then I read it again, and I wrote masterful. Oh, so what changed? So my rereading of it helped me to see it in a different light. And it so happens that this time of the liturgical year in the Office of Readings, we're reading the Job. Book of Job. But uh, there's more to say about this. I don't want to start this I, I, this I think, week i think father this would be a good time to desist is that is that is the word for today? Uh, because this is I, a won't, I, won't, I won't resist very, but i won't insist <laughs> and it's very long this is much longer than most of them and as you do say it's not it's either impenetrable or masterful uh and i would i'm really looking forward to your exposition of it and i certainly mm -hmm. don't think it should be rushed okay so we will leave all of you and leave ourselves so to speak Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the Forum Book Club. We hope to see you next week. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.